All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stable coins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. It's a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiot. And I have a very special guest today, someone I go way back with in the industry. He's the chief legal officer at Blockchain. Uh, you may know him as the number one most famous lawyer man in crypto. Um, <laughs> he and I actually shared awards in uh, the Bitcoin 2014 conference in Amsterdam, uh, which is one of the earliest uh, exposure points that I had to Marco, uh, one of the first people that I met in the industry. Uh, and uh, and have a few war stories and maybe we'll save for the memoirs um, and we'll focus more on on the the, the meat of uh, the crypto legal scene today and and how it's evolved over the course of the last six years. Um, Marco, before we get into what's happening, what your outlook is for the 2020 crypto legal scene and CBDCs, Libra, securities tokens, uh, FATFA all of the other alphabet soup uh, topics that we're going to cover today. Why don't we just start by walking through your background and, and how we even got to this point? Because uh, I'm, I'm kidding only partially, but you, uh, along with maybe one or two other high profile lawyers, really were the, the vanguard for Bitcoin law and crypto law in general, and have pretty much seen it all when it comes to this industry's evolution. So, so, so walk through the, your initial exposure and, and uh, how you've come to uh, lead the legal effort of blockchain. Yeah, well, for, look, first of all, thanks for having me here. You've had great guests and I'm a big fan uh, and a longtime fan. As, as you said, we go, we go way back, back to the early days, uh, back to the early days of crypto when it was really just Bitcoin. Just Bitcoin. Um, so let's see, I got into this in 2012, uh, late to 2012, to be fair. Uh, I bought a Bitcoin miner from Butterfly Labs uh, the OGs uh, in in the in the audience will remember Butterfly Labs as the company that really didn't end up delivering any of those miners. So while I was waiting for uh, waiting to take delivery, I thought, hey, I'm going to read more about uh, Bitcoin and learn more about it. Um, I started posting a Bitcoin talk. You can still read my posts back from 20, I think 13 is when I started posting. Uh, they're pretty cringeworthy. It's you know they're very. Uh, hokey and I say, Hey, I'm a lawyer. I want to learn more about crypto and want to learn more about Bitcoin. Um, love to get to know everybody. <laughs> it was, a, it was, it was a much smaller community back then. Um, but, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I was recruited to lead the regulatory affairs committee of the Bitcoin foundation back when that was a thing. And, um, we were invited, uh, down to DC to explain to regulators and policymakers just what this whole Bitcoin thing was. Uh, and it was FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and the Treasury that uh, threw this big party. And everybody was invited, all the, all the three-letter agencies and four-letter agencies you could think of, um, CFTC, SEC, CIA, FBI, IRSCI. I, the, 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 finest, uh, the finest people were there. And we projected blockchain.info up on... Um, up on the, on the projector screen and said, look, this is a, a network address. This is the sending address, the receiving address. Here's a UTXO. This is how Bitcoin works. Um, and it was uh, the beginning of a, pro of a conversation that has continued uh, until today and, and, and God willing will continue for a very long time. Um, but, you know, back then uh, I was outside counsel. I had uh, practice advising companies in the space and litigating in the space. 
Um, I moved to Pillsbury where I was the, uh, the head of the crypto team at Pillsbury. And then of course recruited, um, to Cooley to lead the global fintech team, Cooley, where I, which I did for a couple of years. I was, uh, lucky enough to fall in with, um, a great group of people at protocol labs. And we, uh, co-authored, um, uh, paper, a white paper called the, uh, SAFT project, um, which of course, um, spawned, um, whole, uh, or really a tectonic shift in the way that tokens were sold, uh, were widely credited with killing, killing the ICO, which is a, a badge I'm, I'm happy to wear. Uh, and now, uh, I have been uh, blockchain's lawyer at this point for almost six years. Uh, and they brought me on full time, uh, uh, just over two years ago to uh, be the chief legal officer here. This is, this is where we are. So that's the whole history. It's, that's the longest introduction I can muster. Now, now, now we're here. Well, uh, we're going to unpack all those different components. So, so first of all, let's talk about the, the 2013 environment. I, I do believe that there's a bit of a misconception with how informed regulators were early on and, and even today and, and all throughout my experience personally has been that there is a very wide variance and that even as far back as 2013, some of the agencies were relatively well-informed and understood how Bitcoin worked. Um, but then the individuals that were perhaps the most informed at all these different agencies typically ended up leaving and many of them got into the industry. So, so what, um, as you engage with, regulators and, and as you've done this over a, a seven year span, what, what are some of the um, telltale signs that someone is going to be very difficult to work with um, or someone is going to be receptive? Because to me, it's almost always seemed to be aligned with their interest and, and enthusiasm for the end subject matter. That's uh, kind of foreshadowed how, how easy it is to work with them. Uh, other folks, you know, uh, they, they have just made up their mind before even walking into the room. Sure. Uh, incentive structures matter. Um, you speak to a regulator in a very different way than you would speak to a policymaker, and which is a very, very different way that you would speak to um, the CEO of a big bank, right? It's a it's a very it's a very different conversation because not only uh, the contents of the conversation matter, but also the context uh, and the medium. So. Um, Going down to Wall Street and having a discussion with the bank is um, a very different affair than, than going down and having a discussion on Capitol Hill, which is in turn different than walking into the CFTC and spending three days there uh, advocating on behalf of a client, which is something I've done. Um, I've, mm -hmm. I've done each of those things. I'll, I will tell you, and um, maybe, maybe it's luck, uh, maybe it's approach, maybe it's a uh, hundred different things, but it's very rare that I've ever um, walked into one of those rooms and been stonewalled or walked into one of those rooms and um, it became clear that these people were out, were out to get me. That these people were uh, had ul ulterior motives that they were not transparent about. Um, mm -hmm. It's very, very rare. It's happened once or twice on Capitol Hill. Um, it's, uh, it happened uh, once uh, during state advocacy, uh, and unfortunately, I'd, I'd love to tell the war stories that most of them are um, privileged and confidential. That, but um, I'll say that by and large, I, I have not yet met anybody who has looked deeply into Bitcoin and the way that cryptocurrency systems work, and not eventually seen their benefits. Um, mm -hmm. You'll always have detractors. You'll always have um, critics, which can be important, certainly if the criticism is um, uh, earnest. But um, it's it's very rare, and I've never met anybody, frankly, who's looked very closely at this stuff and not and not seen real benefits. I think this is where some of the paralysis takes place at the regulatory level as well, because when you're educating the regulators, regardless of which agency it is. They already have set mandates and they're not equipped to move quickly with a new technology, particularly one that's evolving in real time. And by the time they'd be able to wrap their arms around it, there's a new permutation. So regulators got comfortable with Bitcoin. Now there's this proliferation of altcoins. They got comfortable with altcoins. Now there's the ICO. There's the ICO. Then there's the SAFT. 
and there are all of these other, you know, continuous organization structures and DAOs and, and whatnot. Um, so, you know, almost by definition, they're going to be playing catch up at, at most phases here. How, how do you operate in that environment um, as a regulated entity or, or kind of an, uh, an entity that's at the edge of the networks, not actually building one of the networks themselves? The, I think the bias that most people have is they look at the models that have worked with Uber and Airbnb and uh, other novel entities, and, they, and the Silicon Valley mindset becomes, you know, seek forgiveness, not permission. Many crypto entrepreneurs have learned the hard way. That's not, that's not how finance fucking works. <laughs> um, what, in light of those two contrasting uh, elements, on the one hand, even if you are, are doing things above board and trying to move as quickly as possible, you're just not really going to get a very fast response or, or activity from a regulator um, with the fact, uh, and, and juxtapose that with the fact that because we're an early stage ecosystem, you don't have any other choice but to move quickly. Otherwise, whatever jurisdiction you're operating with, if it's holding you back, you're either going to have to move or you're going to get out-competed. So I think the number one mistake that people make when they approach regulators is um, asking for things the regulators can't give. Whether that is um, statutory, regulatory, or just practical. And knowing what you can get out of a conversation is certainly a business skill. Um, but it's also a skill that is deeply applicable to, uh, to advocacy work. Um, so for example, in the early days, not the, not the very early days, but we'll say um, two or three years ago, uh, when the SEC began to ramp up its enforcement activity um, and its attention to uh, the token sale space, individuals and entrepreneurs who were supportive of ICOs, um, I was not one of them, but um, the individuals who, who were, um, went to the SEC and um, essentially registered complaints about the accredited investor standard. Now they didn't realize they were doing that. They thought that they were, you know, preaching philosophy or speaking truth to power. But you know, in 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 practice, there is no individual at the SEC who has the ability to allow you to sell your ICO to uh, an, an unaccredited investor in the United States. It sounds mm -hmm. like a simple thing, but people don't realize what they're asking when 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 they when they try to speak truth to power they think that well if i can explain all of the benefits of token sales if i can if, if i can ex explain how they're really ultimately good for consumers and the accredited investor rules are unfair um maybe we can get a pass here and that's that's just not that's just not how the world works um and you know that's a that's a pretty obvious one but there's also more practical um there's also more practical considerations around what is politically feasible, what moves are, are politically feasible to expect from a regulator um, in the context of headline risk, in the context mm -hmm. of risk when they appear before their, um, their supervising committee on the Hill, right? You can't mm -hmm. go to CFTC and ask them to, to do something that is within their statutory power but and within their discretion, but that they would get absolutely um, destroyed for in an oversight meeting and uh, giving testimony to the agricultural committee, right? It's just, it's just not, it's just not the world we live in and understanding those meets and bounds. is not as easy as reading the statute. It's, it's not as easy as just reading what's, what's there. So if, if you can, if you can understand the situation that the crypto entrepreneurs are in, it's a, it's a tough one. I know, I know that you know this firsthand that going, uh, that, the lawyers themselves don't really understand this stuff. There is a, there is a tremendous lack of education among the bar. You can't expect entrepreneurs and regulators themselves to understand those things. If the lawyers whose job it is to be the professionals and understanding these things don't themselves, that's, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the situation that, that we're, that we're in today. And that's, that's what entrepreneurs face. So, so there's a term that only crypto, uh, hardcore, believers know all too well in, in legal circles. And that's how we, um, everybody in crypto is an armchair lawyer. Well, 
armchair lawyer, armchair economist, armchair investor, uh, but certainly uh, in the context of ICOs, uh, an armchair lawyer, everybody's got their, their bar from some you know, Twitter jurisdiction. Um, and, and perhaps Howie is, is the Howie test in terms of how it relates to whether a token that ICO'd or went through a SAF process as a security is probably where the rubber meets the road for the 2017 beyond assets. Um, to set the stage, uh, we'll talk a bit about those three pillars that you mentioned, statutory, regulatory, and then just the practical in terms of how regulators are, are thinking about grappling with the industry. And maybe the easiest way to start is to just contrast pre-DAO report tokens and post-DAO report tokens, right? So there was this practical event that happened and was it uh, mid-2017, right? July 2017, the SEC gave guidance what they thought about the DAO, this big fundraising smart contract that had imploded uh, with much fanfare just a year prior. And uh, this is in the, the heat of, or I guess, maybe the midpoint of the ICO bubble. Um, and they essentially said almost every ICO that we've seen looks like a security under the Howey test because of these reasons. So the practical event was they actually issued guidance. The regulatory element was this judicial precedent called the Howey test that was, you know, 80-year-old precedent. Regardless of what you believe, um, it was within the purview of the SEC to actually regulate these things as securities based on this 80-year-old test. And then the only way to change that would be via change in statute or like some legislation, right? Um, so that's at least the, the high-level context. So with, within that framework, right, how did you see the conversations with the SEC and token projects um, on maybe on your client side or through word of mouth with, with other crypto lawyers that were uh, representing other teams. How did you see the tenor of the conversations change pre and post DAO report after they warned people and after they gave this guidance? It's a really good question. Um, so to set the stage there, uh, there were the, the tone in, in, in DC as, as far as giving guidance and as far as explaining to the industry how these things ought to be regulated varied wildly between agencies. Um, the FinCEN put out um, guidance, for example, uh, the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, it's a bureau of the Department of the Treasury, they regulate money services. They're trying to prevent crime using um, money transmission, money services businesses they put out guidance that said, look, these kinds of entities are money transmitters. Those kinds of entities are not money transmitters. SEC didn't do that. Um, and only, and only did that after some uh, political pressure was applied to them. Um, and even then, you know, then you can read the commentators on, uh, the, the comments on that, on that guidance from industry wonks and things like that. It, it, it was generally speaking, not, not very well received or at least criticized as being, um, as being vague uh, or ambiguous, I guess is probably the, the, the better word. But in terms of um, how the tenor of the conversations themselves um, changed from pre and well, changed over the years, maybe the DAO is, is, is not the right dividing line and there might not be a very good dividing line, but I'll say to SEC's credit, the, 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 the tenor really, um, changed immediately upon the first meaningful set of enforcement actions. Um, I remember uh, working with SEC and the, and, and the crypto assets, uh, the crypto task force at SEC back before they were called, any, before they had one of the, any of the various names, back in 2014. Um, back here with blockchain, uh, then blockchain.info, we gave them the same sort of presentation that we gave to FinCEN, which was, this is, this is the blockchain. This is, this is how you can trace transactions on the blockchain. And it, it was a very um, consultative approach um, because there wasn't really yet a lot at stake. So it was easy to sort of be friendly and open and all that. Um, there wasn't a lot of political pressure being applied, but then the headlines hit. And I think that, um, well, the headlines hit and the reports that we got back from folks who were going in to see the SEC was that they were mo they, they mostly entered this read-only mode, which mm -hmm. was I think frustrating for a lot of entrepreneurs. But 
perfectly understandable given given the um, the climate in which those conversations were taking place. I don't think it was clear, and it's obviously still not clear um, to the SEC who in the industry would be friend or foe. Um, and it wasn't clear to the industry whether SEC was friend or foe because let's be real, it was a lot of um, millennials who had never really dealt with regulators before uh, making sort of unfounded assumptions about what their job was. Mm -hmm. um, treating the regulators as friends or foes because they are, they are neither of those things. They are regulators. Um, now, on an individual level, I always found um, the people that I worked with um, at SCC to be thoughtful. I found them to have um, uh, strong convictions about um, the laws that they were enforcing and the way that they were enforcing those laws. I also found them to be deeply human and um, there would be a lot of things they did not understand just as there are a lot of things um, here on the industry side that we don't understand not because not for lack of education, not for lack of trying, just because they are so new and because there really isn't much guidance uh, from, from the courts and there remains very little guidance from the courts. Um, I'll tell you, uh, we, we've consulted with SEC. We continue, we continue to consult with SEC on important matters. Um, we're, we're lucky to have a good relationship with them. Um, but you know, they, they, they are a regulator and you have mm -hmm. to, you have to know, know who is in the room with you. So you more or less took credit for killing the ICO. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> um. <laughs> I didn't take credit. People, people it was bestowed uh, upon you. Other, others have credited the, the SAF project with killing the ICO. And, and to be fair, we did come out and say, we think these things are probably illegal. Yeah. Um, and we offered an alternative. And, and uh, this was in the works for a while. Right. Um, but it just so happened that the paper was released a couple of months before the Dow report or maybe a, a month or so um, before the Filecoin token, the SAFT offering. Right. So uh, all right, I had that backwards. So consensus was in May. That's when you kind of unveiled the SAFT projects, opened up for consultation, then the Dow report two months later, and then the I, th I believe the first SAFT was, was Filecoins, no? Wasn't the, um, <laughs> gosh, this is how you can tell someone's in crypto because they have this unbelievably uh, short memory. Uh, but no, the Dow report must have come before um, that we published the white paper. We published the white paper in November of oh, 17. You know, I remember, I, maybe, maybe I'm conflating. I know Juan presented... At consensus. Oh, you're thinking of the of the Coinbase framework. Yes, maybe maybe that was it. Um, and this was in kind of May 2017. You, the Filecoin sale went through, and then uh, you'd release the kind of open proposal. So they were the first. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So well, they they were they were certainly not the first people to use SAFTs, and mm -hmm. um, the folks. The issue that that we were tackling is that there were lots of people using SAFTs. Well, yeah. let, let's just define this real quickly. Yeah, sure. Use this this term, but this after the simple agreement for future tokens modeled off the Y Combinator safe note, which is more typical of equity raises. Um, and what was unique about the SAFT was uh, you were basically creating a theory of everything for crypto. And it was this ability to transmute uh, a token from a security um, to a utility token or, or some you know resource token that can be used on one of these open protocols. Now, I know that's not exactly right, so I'm going to let you clarify uh, what what I misstated. Uh, but the general thinking was raise money from accredited investors in a private sale while you're still the centrally managed team, and then ultimately when the network is ready to release and and you've got your shit in order, uh, then you could distribute pro rata to your SAFT uh, investors as well as any new network participants uh, to, to further decentralize the network. So that's more or less the, what, how I would explain it, maybe not to my five-year-old, but maybe to like a, a 15-year-old because uh, this, this stuff is a little bit more advanced than that. But, but how do we dumb it down even further or, or, or what clarifications would you make to that? Oh, no, I'm going to go in the other direction. I'm going to be, let, 
pedantic about it. Uh, so um, <laughs> you're you're right that the the SAF, uh framework was a, a, a reaction to the rash of uh, what we called in, in the paper pre-functional token sales mm-hmm. that were occurring um, out there in the market. We said uh, these things are probably illegal sales of securities, um, and there there could be a better way given the existing law in the area. Um, and so as a, it's as sort of a self-regulatory effort, um, a, a bunch of industry participants collaborated in developing this thing called the SAF framework, mm-hmm. um, which is to say, yes, it's called, people colloquially call it the SAF, but that's, that's like saying the blockchain. It's, it's just as descriptive. It's just as ridiculous. Um, there are documents called SAFTs, Simple Agreements for Future Tokens. People who, who use SAFTs don't always use the SAFT framework, uh, which we boldly co-opted um, from, the, from the title of the document. But no, what we did was propose a way of using this document, the, this, the SAFT, to, um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that we thought stood a good chance of complying with U.S. securities laws. Um, and so the approach is um, before you have a functional product, we use function, functional as a, as a placeholder. Um, if you're going to sell an interest in that product and that, in that token, that interest is probably going to trigger the security clause. It's probably going to result in a security, um, meaning that whatever agreement you enter into with the purchaser is probably going to be governed by the securities laws. Why? Because what you're doing is exposing that purchaser to investor-like risks, the kinds of risks that uh, securities laws seek to control. But once, um, once the network is functional, again, this is just a placeholder word, once the network is functional, if you go and you sell that token to the public, if the public purchaser is taking on risks, they look a lot less like investor risks. They look more like consumer risks. Because the thing is a functional good. If I if I buy if I buy a a car and uh, in three weeks the engine cuts out and it doesn't it sputters out and doesn't work, maybe I can hold you know Mazda responsible for it or Mercedes responsible for it, depending on what kind of lawyer you are. Um, uh, that that makes sense under like the lemon laws, the consumer protection laws. But whether or not Mazda did a good job in its quarterly, you know, put out a good quarterly report or, or performed well financially, really doesn't matter in the world of whether or not the engine works. That's a consumer-like risk. So pre-functionality, these are investor-like risks. The company has to perform. The individuals have to expend their technical and managerial expertise to improve uh, the value of my good, of, the, of this thing that I bought. But once the thing works, well, I just care if it works or not. I don't care about the, the performance of the, of the management team. Um, and that line we called functionality. And of course, there's no right line. There is no thick black line. It's a heuristic for understanding risk. And the way that we thought about that risk was, look, um, the risk that um, you're going to fall into the securities laws is actually almost directly proportional to the degree to which you have not yet delivered on the promises you've made to your investors. So if you told, if you told all of your purchasers, this thing is going, this, this new network is going to do A, B, and C, and you launch your token, you actually sell this token to, um, uh, to end users, to purchasers, after you've expended technical and managerial expertise to make it do A, B, and C, well, what are they relying on you for? Actually, very little. Um, maybe software updates and that kind of thing, but practically speaking, not a whole lot. But if you promise your investors A, B, C, D, E, F, G, um, you promise your purchasers, I should say, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and you then you only deliver A, B, and C, when you go out and sell that thing to the public, the public, everyone's still waiting on you to, to deliver, to, to expend your technical and managerial expertise to in, imbue this thing with... Mm-hmm. EFG. So they're not just purchasers, they're investors. They're investing in you and your ability to create this stuff. Um, that, in, that, it, that sounds like a security. In reality, I mean, isn't this all ICOs though? I mean, this was the, this was the criticism of the SAF was that it was cute. Uh, and it, it, it in theory worked. It, it in theory addressed the concerns that 
uh, a securities regulator like the SEC might have, but in practice, the teams were kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, the speculators were wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The accredited investors that were buying the SAFs um, were, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're going to be able to, you know, once this goes public on an actual crypto exchange and is much more liquid, it's going to go to the moon and we're going to be able to flip this for, for a pretty, you know, healthy stake. Now, not all investors did that and not all teams did it exactly this egregiously, but maybe because of the trends in the industry at the time, this certainly was, was more often than the case than not. Um, in the height of the euphoria, what's happened to coincide in kind of the last six months of, of 2017, which is when this framework was, was brought to light. Um, Ryan, I got to disagree. You totally disagree? I, I have to disagree with that. That I, I saw this firsthand. I was counsel to a lot of these companies. Um, that wink, wink, nudge, nudge stuff that you're identifying were not folks who used the SAFT framework. They may have sold documents with a, and they typed SAFT at the top, but anyone can do that with Google Docs or Microsoft Word, right? It doesn't actually take anybody reading about how the framework works, what, what the underlying objectives of it are. Um, there was no wink, wink, nudge, nudge for folks who used the SAFT project framework. There was a, a dogged obedience to the principles of the thing. Um, plenty of people sold SAFTs. Plenty of people did ICOs. But um, the real criticism of the SAFT framework that, that I've heard, and, and frankly, that I, um, uh, I put stock in, uh, and I think is a real criticism, it wasn't legal criticism. There still haven't any been, been any real criticisms legally of, of, of the SAFT framework um, because we, we did our research and so far there hasn't been any new precedent. That's really, mm-hmm. that's really why. It's not because we were particular geniuses. Um, and, and, and so there will be more legal criticism of the, of the SAFT framework. No, instead the criticisms of the SAFT framework, the good criticisms, the, the palpable criticisms of the SAFT framework were these moral criticisms. They were saying, look, what, what this framework does is give accredited investors, it gives rich people um, the juiciest deals and then allows them to dump the, the, these tokens that they bought. It allows them to dump them on retail investors. Um, and that's not fair. Why should they get that advantage? And why should retail investors have to wait until the very end um, to participate in whatever upside is left? Um, and the answer to that is you should write a strongly worded letter to your congressman. <laughs> <laughs> what you're complaining about there are the accredited investor mm-hmm. uh, standards. You're complaining that accredited investors have a, a prized uh, and preferable position in the world of, of, of privately held securities and they get the juiciest deals uh, and they can, they can turn around and dump those dump those deals on unsophisticated, unaccredited investors. Well, that's how the private markets for equities work today. It just takes a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I hear those complaints. I, 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 I think they're meaningful. I think they're real. Um, and I share them. I share them. I absolutely do. But there, but there was no wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There was none of that among people who were actually following the SAFT framework. There, there's another element here, though, um, that's interesting, and, and that's, okay, so you've distributed tokens, and you've ostensibly decentralized the, the maintenance of, of this protocol. If you try to add something, even via community governance vote, that would make the protocol asset look more like a security, or have more attributes as if it's a security, so this could be any um, generation of fees on the network that accrue to the token holders. It could be you know, new issuance that accrues to the token holders. Um, that tends to make these tokens arguably more useful and more compelling to hold and own because they've got investor attributes that, that would be attractive to any retail or professional investor. But you also start to immediately open yourself up to, to sizable risk. Um, classic example of this is, is Binance, right? Uh, with their buy and burn uh, model for 20% of their quarterly profits, the intention was buy BNB in the open market, burn those, and it effect- effectively works a little bit like a stock buyback. Um, 
Now, maybe maybe Binance is an imperfect example because it's a centralized exchange. Um, but I think there are other models that are percolating right now where some of the teams would like to incorporate elements like that that actually accrue value to the token holders. But the developers in the ecosystem are, are, are worried to do anything that would look like a, a, an economic construct designed to elevate the token price. Um, what happens after these things go live? Um, not in the 2017 variety, but in kind of the steady state, you know, actual actual environment where people are innovating versus just blowing smoke up each other's asses. Um, as, as teams now consider the ramifications every single time they want to make a feature change as to what this will do to their ongoing compliance efforts, their, maybe even their community compliance efforts, so that the token maintains liquidity and support it at some of the other regulated entities that support it. So it's important to, that, that's a good point. Um, and I think it's a concern that's shared by a lot of entrepreneurs and, and, and those who have sold tokens um, that now circulate um, publicly. It's, uh, there's actually good news there. So simply adding features to an already circulated token doesn't make it any more or less of a security. The analysis is conducted at the, at, at the time of uh, at the time of the sale, um, and it's conducted in particularly the securities analysis, I should say, is is conducted with regard to what the reasonable expectation of the purchasers was at the time of the sale. Mm -hmm. um, so, if if you are a token seller that is you know, promising to expend all kinds of technical and managerial expertise to um, to improve the uh, to improve the functionality or the efforts or the whatever it might be um, of that of that token, and then you have purchasers who are relying on that. Um, well, that is one side of uh, a spectrum. On the other hand, if you don't make those promises and there aren't purchasers relying on you to expend that technical and managerial expertise, but you just do those things in the future. We aren't looking uh, at we aren't looking then at investor like risks. We're looking at sort of consumer like risks, right? Investors rely on a founding team to fulfill their promises. Full stop. Purchasers don't really do that. They buy the widget off the shelf, and maybe there are software updates, or maybe there are not. But they're not relying on those things for profit, right? They're not relying on those things uh, in the same way that an, that, that an investor would. So th those, those, um, those unpromised efforts that take place after sale, mm -hmm. they, shouldn't, they shouldn't inhibit uh, entrepreneurs from making cool new stuff, from, from doing things that are going to improve the functionality of the token by any stretch. Do you think that there are no cases then where, uh, a team that continues to work full time on a project um, and maybe even that proposes new features that would make the, the, the asset look more like a token um, doesn't get itself into hot water after the distribution of tokens, right? So you're talking about the snapshot in time, but I'm finding it very, very difficult. Um, I've got a very specific example in mind, right? Uh, where maybe a centralized entity uh, was gifted uh, the vast majority of, of the network tokens if that same entity then decided to propose a change uh, to the protocol that would ultimately uh, help to share revenue from said entity or said network. It, it, it seems to I'll, me I'll, that, is, that is right like there. On, and on, the, on the efforts of others. It's with the expectation of profit. You know, the, the end users for that token would be much more interested in, in a token as an investment versus just, you know, some currency or, or you know, uh, what's the example that's been used? The uh, arcade token, right? There, more so, Ryan, there, 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 there is no law that states a decentralized token is less likely to be a security. There is no law that states mm -hmm. a centralized token is more likely to be a security. Those concepts don't exist in the law. Uh, they came into existence uh, in one speech where Director Hinman gave, I think, a very useful heuristic 
mm-hmm. for how to interpret the law and how to interpret the SEC's position on these issues. Um, but even then, the SEC really hasn't applied those principles since that speech. They've mostly backed away from it. Um, I, I would, I know we're getting super duper deep uh, into this particular issue, which is right in my alley. But I would caution, uh, I would caution folks doing this analysis on their own to relying. I would caution them against relying too much on um, these notions of centralization, decentralization, even though they're flattering for the SAF uh, project and the SAF analysis, they're, they're not really, they're not really what the law is after. Well, uh, you're right that we spent a lot of time on this topic. I think the vast majority of assets that people are maybe most interested in right now are either the currencies that have been around for a very long time um, or ones that went through some form of an ICO uh, or a SAFT, or are just coming to market maybe in, in you know the, the, the coming six to 12 months. Um, so it's one of those kind of long dated issues where maybe the, the sins were committed or not committed uh, in you know 2017, now three full years ago, maybe even longer, depending on the project. And, and you're still uh, maybe seeing some of the tail risks that, that might hit these projects uh, in the year two, three to come. As, uh, as you say, as, as some of these precedents get established. Um, I do want to change tack, though, and, uh, and focus on FATFA. Um, so if you think that, that the SEC is big and scary uh, and uh, could, could ultimately you know, wreak havoc or, or ultimately you know, stifle innovation in your pet project um, or, or protocol, then uh, you haven't really seen what scary is uh, until you've actually dealt with OFAC uh, compliance and money transmitter issues and basically all the things that the Patriot Act was built around. Um, so I, I'd put the you know SEC penalties and and ICO issuer concerns in the kids box next to some of the potential ramifications for the extension of of FATFA rules or non-compliance with FATFA rules and, and in particular the travel rule you know which is just in a completely different stratosphere uh, in terms of riskiness for non-compliance and, um, and also the relevance in particular this year as some of these new recommendations go, come into place. And particularly they're around tracking customer information on transfers in and out of regulated exchanges and wallets. Um, and, and the big concern may be the impact that this has on the privacy and fungibility of, of these major networks. So, um, let's let's spend the rest of this uh, conversation talking about that second theme, which I think is probably the the, the second major one in um, in crypto law this year. Yes, we we're maybe not going to be able to talk about central bank digital currencies, but we'll have we'll have plenty of time to next year and the year after that, and the year after that, because that's going to operate on a very lengthy time scale. Um, let's talk about privacy uh, and and your general thoughts on what people should expect when it comes to the impact that FATFA may have on the crypto markets, not just here, but worldwide. Sure. So um, a little bit of history of the, of the travel rule is important here. People hear about it. It sounds like a, it's, it's, it sounds like a scary boogeyman. Uh, and for good reasons, it could, it could, it could really be a problem uh, for crypto. Um, but it's important to understand it in context, in particular in historical context. The, we, the United States has always had a travel rule. Uh, the travel rule says, look, if you're a financial institution and you send money on behalf of your customer to another financial institution, information about that transaction and about the, uh, the sender has to travel with the transaction. So in practice, this means when you go to your bank and you send a wire transfer, you fill out all your personal information. You don't fill that out for your bank. The bank already knows that. What they do is send that information to the receiving bank. So the, so the information travels along with the funds, hence the fund travel rule. The U.S. has always had this rule. And back in 2013, uh, when FinCEN said uh, publicly that, the, tra- that the, uh, the Bank Secrecy Act and the Patriot Act apply to cryptocurrencies in more or less the same way they apply to government currencies, um, one of the corollaries to that was that the travel rule applies. Um, they didn't make that explicit on the first day. They made it explicit... Um, three or four months after when they were starting to hold meetings with crypto companies. And I was in some of those meetings. Um, crypto companies were furious. They said, that's, that's insane. 
it doesn't make any sense. How, how are we as a financial institution, if you're Coinbase or uh, Bitstamp or whoever else, how are we to know when a user makes a withdrawal? How are we to know that the address that they supply is um, one that belongs to another financial institution? We have no idea. It could just be their own personal uh, mm-hmm. software wallet. They could be transferring to a blockchain.info wallet at the time, right? Um, and the banks, or, and I should say the, um, the folks on BSAG, the Bank Secrecy Act Advisory Group, um, and the folks at FinCEN um, were mostly baffled by this. They had no idea what any of those words meant. Um, and it seemed insane that you could just send money, just push money out into the ether, and uh, the sending institution wouldn't actually know where those funds are going. Uh, mm-hmm. if, they were, if they were scared initially, they were scared now. They were terrified now. So um, after about a year of uh, screaming and yelling and um, table pounding uh, with the help of a number of the policy professionals who were working in the space back in 2014, um, the uh, FinCEN settled into um, what's called forbearance. They, they said, look, the travel rule applies to crypto companies, but we're going to forbear enforcement. We are not going to enforce and it's our discretion. They never said it, they just didn't enforce it. And to this day, they have not um, publicly, at least um, announced any enforcement activity based on the travel rule requirement. But one of the excuses, one of the justifications, setting aside the technical impossibilities at the time, one of the justifications that the industry used for not uh, complying with the travel rule was that none of the other countries in the entire world took this position. So it didn't make any sense to, 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 to include personal identi- personally identifying information along with a transaction that could be going to some other country that didn't even follow this rule. What, what were they going to do with this information? It didn't make any sense. Enter the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, which is a multinational organization. Um, it's a non-governmental organization but it's made up of the FinCENs of the world, uh, those who are uh, interested and tasked with preventing financial crimes at at the federal level in each of their respective countries, get together with um, and um, talk about how to implement international standards around anti-money laundering. Well, I'll I'll give you one guess who the president of the FATF was this last term. It was Uncle Sam, and Uncle Sam used... um, its presidency to do a whole lot of things at the FATF, but one of them was to export its crypto policy to the rest of the FATF member states. And so just recently, uh, last year, we got a proclamation, we got a bit of FATF guidance saying, um, everybody who is a FATF member state needs to implement the travel rule. Now, does that mean any of them have implemented a travel rule? No, none of them have. Uh, But the FATF says that they should. Um, does that mean that they will? Probably, probably. In fact, almost certainly these other countries will implement um, travel rules for crypto. Um, But also, just as certainly, not all of them will. What happens to countries who don't implement this? They get put on a bad boy list. There's a uh, so-called FATF gray list. You can go to the website now, fatf.org. Um, and you can take a look at the countries on the FATF gray list for a variety of reasons. So um, we can all expect... For those, for those who are bored tonight, of course, and, and would like the, the riveting uh, distraction of going through FATF.org. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you can, well, it, there is a pretty map, and it's, mm-hmm. and it's colored. One of the colors is gray for those countries that are on the gray list. Um, somebody there is cheeky, I'm sure. Um, and found that entertaining, and that's now you can tell. So um, we should expect um, that not only here in the United States, but also abroad uh, to see this uh, rule start to be enforced. And, and just to be clear, this is already starting to happen. Uh, so the uh, Korean exchanges, Japanese exchanges uh, are, are maybe much more, uh, much further ahead of the U.S. with respect to self-regulation anyway. Um, and uh, even in Singapore, MAS, I think, just had a, a new piece of guidance that came out, which was essentially rendering any businesses doing um, uh, facilitating crypto trading 
as kind of manda- manda- mandated to actually comply with the travel rule. So, you know, travel rule ready um, statute that just came out, I think maybe even earlier this week. But it, it's not, even though FATFA is, is a non-governmental body, right? I, I don't think that truly gives people a sense for just how much power they do have because this bad boy list is not um, really an optional one where if you're on it, like whatever, if you're on the gray list, that sounds like it's not so bad. It, maybe it's a little bit of a hiccup, but but it's it's actually much worse than that. Um, yeah, I mean, a, practically speaking, it means that if you, use, if you use a bank, and mm-hmm. you are sending money to uh, other banks in countries that are on this gray list, your bank will flag you as, uh, will uh, give you a higher risk score. Meaning overall, the bank has to have more deposits to cover that risk score, which means you just, uh, your, your juice is incrementally less worth the squeeze to that bank, mm-hmm. which means it's less likely that you're going to have uh, banking support in the future. Which is which is the end all be all if you're in particular if you're running a crypto exchange and an on or off ramp. Um, so, how how does this play out in practice? Uh, how do the exchanges come into compliance with the travel rules? Is it as simple as just checking a box if you're the customer and saying I am removing these assets to my personal wallet here, um, or? you know, what type of restriction then does an exchange have to place on uh, an end user? Because we've already started to see, even recently, you're just starting to see some instances where people are posting screenshots of customer support emails that they get from Binance or Coinbase or other, you know, regulated crypto companies um, that basically flag outgoing transactions and say, we see here you're trying to send to a CoinJoin wallet, or we see here you're trying to send to, um, a mixing service and that type of transaction is not allowed. So is it just as simple as, as having the users, you know, basically fill out a waiver or um, make some type of self attestation about where the funds are going or, or, or ultimately will this be something that's much more involved? It's a great question. And um, the answer to that question will define the future of fungibility uh, for crypto. Um, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, MBD. It's 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 not yet decided, and um, that's important because um, if it if it could be just as simple as a checkbox, meaning there may simply be an intent or a mens rea qualifier to the requirement. So mm-hmm. an exchange shall not knowingly send. Um, funds to another exchange um, without collecting information and sending that information on to the other exchange. Maybe that's the implementation. That would be a sensible implementation, um, in which case the, the exchange would be held to a standard that would include requiring sort of that checkbox, but also include blockchain analysis and trying to know what the other exchange's addresses were, or at least mm-hmm. developing some sort of reasonable understanding of what those addresses are. Um, in terms of how it will practically happen, uh, I, uh, the, it'll probably happen in the same way that it did in 2014, where uh, the, the regulators uh, started dinging financial institutions on their audits for mm-hmm. not following the travel rule. The financial institutions will complain and say, well, we couldn't, we can't follow it. We have no idea how. How do you expect us to follow it? And the regulators, uh, Treasury, will probably say, that's not our problem. That's your problem. You, dear crypto people, figure that out yourself. You just need to follow the law. We're not, a, we're not the innovators. We're not the entrepreneurs. You are. Figure out a solution. And there are a number of solutions uh, floating around today. Um, some of them are protocol level proposals. Others are just compliance vendors, right? Like the blockchain analysis mm-hmm. firms want to sell the exchanges their own solution. Um, uh, so the ID verification companies, I think, have proposed solutions. Um, there's no good answer yet. But if we get this right, um, then commerce will continue in a free-flowing sort of way that uh, we all kind of want it to. If we get this wrong, it'll probably um, lead to the creation of a two-tiered system of clean coins and dirty coins. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a, a redux then of what we saw in 2014 with the, the coin validation. I think that was what it was called, right? The coin validation. Um, 
effort or, or there's a couple of companies in New York I know that were thinking about that. Um, and I think rightfully so, it was uh, an initiative that was panned and, and pushed back uh, against pretty fiercely within the crypto community, um, the, the Bitcoin community really just back then. Um, what, what more practically speaking, do you think this means for uh, privacy coins or, or at least those native networks that are really going all in on privacy by default? Because we started to see delistings of Monero and Zcash in particular from the Korean Japanese exchanges to start. Others are afraid that there might be more shoes to drop in, in the year ahead as um, exchanges grapple with the implications of, of the FATF requirements. Uh, so in the United States, we haven't seen that. Um, we haven't seen those requirements yet. We've seen exchanges take these sort of self-regulatory approaches. Um, I think there was a screenshot of one, one exchange uh, circulating where they had rejected an inbound transaction because it came from a mixer. Um, but in the United States, um, there's no per, per se prohibition against privacy coins. In fact, in the United States, uh, in New York, here where I sit um, in particular, uh, Zcash uh, has been approved as uh, an asset that bit license holders can um, can support. So not only has the U.S. not taken a prohibitive approach, uh, here in New York, the most aggressive state regulator has explicitly said that that's, that's permissible to support those, those assets. Um, and particularly calling out the privacy features as a net positive, sort of a public policy statement that New Yorkers uh, demand privacy and that these coins can provide that privacy, um, mm -hmm. which is, which is good. It's, it's great. And, and I have to say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm surprised to see, uh, to see that come from uh, regulators that are otherwise pretty um, uh, conservative. Yeah. I, I think maybe the biggest worry is that for whatever reason that reverses uh, and, and, you know, if there was some moments in time in the next couple of years where, whether it was New York DFS or, or FinCEN, uh, turn around and said, actually, we don't really like that there's this whole pool of transactions that are just by definition unknowable for us. So we don't want you supporting liquidity for this asset. And where this might get most interesting, I know we're, we're not going to be able to go that into the weeds because otherwise this could be a three-hour episode. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm not even sure if anyone's going to listen all the way through. Uh, if, if their eyes haven't glazed over, thank you for listening. And, and hopefully you, you know, you've learned quite a bit. But uh, the one thing that a, a central bank digital currency has from a regulatory perspective that a crypto asset might not is the ability to surveil cover to cover, right? This is what is ultimately so attractive about the, the Chinese digital yuan and their ability to surveil you know, pretty much their entire um, set of economic activity by forcing users to use this new traceable digital cash. If something similar, some FedCoin initiative were to take off and FinCEN and the Fed and um, all the other major regulators got together and said, we really think that Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies are fundamentally broken because they don't allow for this type of surveillance. Um, that's, that's about as bad a, a risk as you get. You're not just talking about kind of breaking the fungibility of crypto, but, but potentially, you know, harming liquidity, not just in the privacy coins, but in any currency where it's possible to go through something like a, a mixing service. Yeah, um, and I think that those developments are going to be highly event-based. We're going to see, uh, we're going to see that happen in response to headlines, um, terrorist attacks, um, widespread, widespread ransomware, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Well, luckily, it's still only 1% of the network. Um, Marco, uh, we, we spent a lot of time on two topics. I happen to think that they're probably the two most important, you know, media topics for people to monitor this year. Um, why, why don't we do a quick lightning round uh, and, and talk about STOs? Uh, when do you think we'll see the first bona fide uh, security token that, that has actual liquidity and, and real trading volume on a major exchange? I think it's a slow road and a pretty uninteresting one. Um, I, I got to admit, uh, tokenized securities um, are just securities. 
we, we, we're written in a different ledger. We, I mean, we, we're, we're going to see, look here, I'll answer your question. We're going to, we're, we're, we're going to see a great STO when there's a great underlying asset that's actually investable to invest mm -hmm. in. That's the, that's the short story. Well, we agree it's going to take a long time and it's not going to be that interesting. So we can skip right over that. Um, and maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll end with one. Since you were prognosticating on price at a, an investor event earlier today, and everybody wants to hear about price from a crypto lawyer. Um, <laughs> so, so, you, so for all of the, the Twitter uh, barred attorneys that can be armchair lawyers, now this is your chance to be an armchair super investor and, uh, and, and prognosticator on uh, trading trends. What uh, do you think 2020 has in store, number one? And then to tie it back to legal a little bit, uh, where do you think we, we honestly stand with respect to a Bitcoin ETF in the U.S.? Is this something that has to wait until Jay Clayton steps aside? I saw firsthand that the um, 2017 rally was created uh, by one thing. It was a very simple thing. Uh, and it is the reason why so many people are paying attention to crypto today. It was because 2017 was when the world realized that there was more to all of this than just Bitcoin. We went from zero. We, 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 when we went from zero to one, when there was nothing and then there was Bitcoin, we saw a huge price rallies. It was incredible. We all got into this industry. I know that's when you got into this. It's when I got into it. When we went from one to many, it was a, a huge rush. Uh, a, a huge retail rush when people realized there was more to this than just Bitcoin. Very simple sort of sort of uh, developments. I don't think we're going to see another bull run in the same way that we saw in 2017 until there is something equally foundational, something equally um, fundamental that is changed or amplified in crypto is going from one to many. I think an ETF could do that. I think an ETF is... Uh, it, 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 um, it is in, uh, a tremendous amplification of the scope and the scope and, and the reach of crypto assets. Um, so I think it's that, 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 that is a big deal. Whereas STLs are just not a very big deal for me. Mm -hmm. An ETF would be an enormous deal for anybody who owns any crypto assets, um, because it would open them up to an enormous investor class that it just was not opened up to before. It, it kind of shocking that that's uh, not necessarily a mainstream view. I feel like many, you know, within the industry, maybe the, it's just because there's so much fatigue about the whole concept of a Bitcoin ETF that people are just sick of hearing about it. Like, Oh, it's not going to impact the price. Um, but I, I, I think that uh, this industry is still so narrative driven that the, the passage, first of all, I think the having, even though it's just a narrative and it should be priced in, it's probably not. But two, Bitcoin ETF is not just a narrative, right? To your point, it's, it's opening up the accessibility of the asset class uh, in a way that, um, that, that really hasn't happened, um, I would argue, since 2013, 2012, when, when Coinbase rolled out, not even 2017. 2017 was just about a new set of assets that you could speculate on and kind of the, the Kool-Aid for people to drink. But, uh, but this would actually be like a, an audience game changer. Um, in reality, though, it seems clear that the SEC has kind of laid out its requirements for an ETF to get approved. And so much of it hinges on shared surveillance agreements with the major exchanges and the fact that a lot of price discovery is happening on what they deem as unregulated entities that are, are you know, facilitating activity offshore, in many cases that they might not agree with um, in terms of the, the policies and procedures uh, that, that take place under these entities. Um, is, uh, is that an intractable problem or is it just this particular administration or, or this particular person? Because we've started to hear murmurs of dissent and you look at something like the Grayscale products, they're great products, but they're fucking terrible for the people that are buying GBTC on the open market versus what a, an ETF would be. So let's go back to practicality since we cover this, you know, at the very onset, it's been a consistent theme. Practically speaking, when does the damaged retail investors by not approving an ETF outweigh some of the concerns the SEC has, if at all. It is an intractable problem as you, as you called it, and it will be an intractable problem so long as we have this commission. Uh, surveillance agreements aren't gonna happen, uh, not because Coinbase and Bitstamp don't wanna sign and Bitrex and Gemini and all the rest don't wanna sign surveillance agreements, but because 
literally anybody can trade, can spin up a Bitcoin market. It is, it is a permissionless system. It is, it is, in that sense, it is the most liquid, I should say it's the most fluid asset um, ever known to man. And it is, uh, that is, that is not going to change. There will always be manipulation and uh, discovery occurring as a result of that manipulation. What's going to have to change is the commission. Do I believe the commission will change? Well, that's a political question. We know the commissioners change to make up the, the commission. If we have more Hester purses on the, on the commission in a few years, um, then that could, uh, that could change. But no, I don't, I don't see uh, about faces from the current administration. Well, can't all be sunshine and rainbows, I guess. I guess uh, Marco, Marco uh, where can people find you and, uh, and what do you have in store this year for blockchain? Anything to promote? Yeah, um, so I, I appreciate that. So uh, we've worked really hard on the blockchain exchange. Uh, when it was in beta, we called it the pit. Uh, mm -hmm. And we had uh, we actually had Captain Kirk himself help us out and uh, do a commercial. You can, you can check that out at blockchain.com. Um, we launched the pit uh, early on uh, last year. Uh, volumes are steadily increasing. Um, and we are among the most liquid exchanges today. More info on that uh, coming shortly. We've added a number of different assets. Uh, it's super easy to sign up and it's super easy to trade. One uh, element and feature that I'm particularly proud of is what we're calling the Wallet Connect, which is a one-click transfer from your non-custodial wallet to the custodial exchange. In one click, you can move coins onto and off of the exchange. No copy and pasting addresses, no test transactions, none of that. Uh, we're the only exchange that is actually encouraging you to be your own bank, to self-custody your coins if you want to do that. We think it's safer. We think it's better for everybody that you do it. Um, like check out blockchain.com. Marco, and your at Marco ES. Oh, and of course, on Twitter, uh, you can at blockchain on Twitter. Uh, or if you want more of this incisive commentary, um, I'm M. Santori ESQ. M. Centauri ESQ. Marco, always a pleasure. Thank you for breaking down uh, some, some pretty heady concepts, but I, I think generally misunderstood concepts. So, uh, so this is one of the more informative from one of the most informed uh, by virtue of, of all the folks that you, you know and all the work that you've done over eight years now. Time goes. Oh Time goes. You're getting old, man. I'm pulling out the gray hairs so no one can tell. Well, we'll, we'll before you know, we'll be able to do the decade in review um, in be fun. Bitcoin and crypto law. So thanks again for joining. And until next time, thank you all for tuning in. Talk to you again real soon. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me, otherwise, I'll see you next week.